Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we read Ezekiel 37, 1-14, another text set in the time of exile. In a book known for bizarre visions and sign acts, this chapter shows us the valley of dry bones. We dive into the great chasm between hopeless and hopeful, find Ezekiel somewhere in the middle, willing to prophesy to scattered bones in a field as he's been told, but honestly unsure what will happen when he does. We discuss the role of stories that feel scary in our lives of faith, and how the concrete images of bodies and of death in this chapter force us to go all the way to our own most frightening thoughts before it pulls us back. And we see the sort of alchemy between God's power and Ezekiel's willingness to speak God's words into the world, even when he's not entirely sure what will happen. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing well. How are you? I am also doing well. <laughs> that was like the most riveting introduction any podcast has ever had. I think so. I was listening to an old episode the other day and started to think that I always answer the question in the same way. Yeah. And so I have to answer it differently. How do you normally answer it? You're like, I am... Good. Yeah. And then I like think for a minute because I try to actually think when people ask me that yeah. question. And then I make a witty comment about how uh, your voice says one thing, but your words say another thing. And then we have that conversation like <laughs> like at least twice a month. This is very meta now. We're having yeah, now we're having a conversation about the conversation. About the conversation. But I do have a thing I want to tell you. Oh, yeah. Tell me the thing, please. So I'm doing this training program with some other folks in my synagogue, with a bunch of churches and synagogues in the Southeast. Okay. And it's called Resetting the Table. And the purpose is to give us the skill set to help convene conversations on sort of hot topics like sensitive issues between people that have different viewpoints. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I've been in these trainings where they like, they gave us a survey of our, our political and social views, and then they match you up with people that you have strong disagreements with. And, <laughs> oh, they, wow. and, and, um, and you try out specific skills in, in conversation with them. And it's, yeah. um, it's been so interesting. But the, the thing that I really wanted to tell you was the first skill we learned was to try to pay attention to what's important to them in what they're saying instead of what's important to you in what they're saying. Yeah. And a lot of the techniques they describe, like look at, look for, listen for repeated words and phrases or listen for, you know, increased emotional intensity or specificity around a particular area of, you yeah. know, whatever they're talking about. And it made me think about reading biblical text too, that like, yeah. it's like you pass over the text with this little like heat sensor and you're like, what are the places? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you and I know we're sort of reading against the text. Like we're reading something that feels important to us to draw out. And that's yeah. all fine and good. But I don't know. It just was, I was like, every person's like a page of Torah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that analogy. And I love it in both directions. Every person is like a page of Torah. And every page of Torah is like a person. Is like a person. And paying attention to what matters. And, you know, you're talking about reading against the text. And, you know, the other thing that you learn as a literary theorist is that, you know, Freud was on to something. Like, whatever you think about Freud, when Freud hmm. says people are often not conscious of what they actually care about, like, I think that that yes. is true. And so I it's not just listening true. to what they, listening to what they think is important is important, but also yeah. listening to what is really motivating them that they are not actively articulating yes. is also important. Yeah. And so when you say we read against the text, I think oftentimes I think that's what we're trying to do is to say like, what's going on underneath this text that this text may not actually be aware mm -hmm. it's of. It's like not explicitly in the mind of whoever's holding the pen. Yeah. Yeah. 
what are they trying so hard not to say? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> really yeah. And yeah. I definitely had experiences like that too in this in this training that yeah. we've been doing. It's it's cool and so hard. Oh and my gosh, that training sounds I mean, amazing. But I feel it's so funny because I went into it being like, I'm pretty good at this. Like, yeah. I, I I'm like a pretty good listener, and I don't get mad too quickly and whatever. But it's really, hard. <laughs> it's really <laughs> yeah. hard. It's very humbling. Yeah, humbling. I can't. Yeah. Hmm. I can't. Yes, because I there are certain things that just shut me down immediately. Like if somebody says, I mean, I'm sure we're all this way, especially in this history. Yeah, you have moment, just your certain issues. They say a certain thing, I'm like, yep, and nope, like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> yep. <laughs> See oh, ya. I'm getting reactive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know who was not that way in the slightest <laughs> is Ezekiel. That guy, cool he as was a cucumber. Cool as a cucumber, <laughs> and he had some weird experiences. Yeah, Ezekiel. I love. I love Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. But he says a lot of the things that are kind of triggering, and you kind of wonder what's going on with that guy sometimes. Well, I mean, at least in this text, he doesn't really get to choose much of what he says. Oh, that's he's true. He's just saying whatever he's told. That is true. All right, so today we're in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 to 14. This is quite a famous passage about a valley of dry bones, which we'll talk about more in detail. But this is a really well-known text. And so trying to think through like, well, what, what is this? What's in this text and what can we, what can we take from it for our own context? But before we get to that, can you set the stage for us for Ezekiel? Last time we talked, we were in Jeremiah and now we have moved on to Ezekiel. So what do we need to know to get us from Jeremiah to here? So we're not so far historically from Jeremiah Ezekiel lived around the same time. Maybe Jeremiah was a little bit older than he was. Ezekiel was a Jerusalemite who was exiled to Babylon in that first of the two exiles that we yeah. talked about last time. Um, so one of the, you know, quote unquote elites or influencers or or people that that the Babylonians just didn't want hanging around in Jerusalem anymore. He is both a priest and a prophet. Yeah. So like his his religious experiences, the way they're described here are prophetic. And he has visions and he he performs these very strange symbolic actions. And his his discourse is pretty prophetic, but his his frame of reference is often from the priestly world. So you'll mm. you might hear things with like purity and impurity, and he yeah. has this long description of a a temple that will be rebuilt, which is not what we're reading today, but that's just his, like, I feel like that's the life experience that he draws from. So that's that's the language he uses to communicate. He, he wrestles throughout the book with the problems posed by the exile, the big question that we yeah. have been naming for a couple weeks now, I think. Why mm-hmm. did God allow the temple to be destroyed? Yeah. What, and what future is there for Israel? Like, what, yeah. is, what is the meaning of this catastrophic historical event? Yeah. For the future. A couple other things I would say. Ezekiel is very complex. It's very hard to understand. Yeah. The visions that he has become the basis for Jewish mysticism. Mm-hmm. And maybe because of that, I don't know, it, it, they, they made the rabbi, this whole book made the rabbis a little bit nervous. Yeah. And the Mishnah advises us that the first chapter of Ezekiel should not be taught before even one person, unless that person is a sage who is already fully competent in the Jewish tradition. Like this, Ezekiel <laughs> yeah. could really take you down another, yeah. <laughs> another pathway. And so there's there's this plea that before you venture into this bizarro universe, that that you're grounded yeah. in tradition sort of as it is. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know if we're grounded or not, but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna jump right on in. But we're gonna jump right on. Yeah, in. Was there, yeah. Was there something else you wanted to say about the book in general? No, I mean th- that's the main introduction I would offer. Yeah. You want to add anything to that? I, I love that. No, I, I thought that was terrific. The only you know the only slight. Uh, I mean, I was saying something you already said, but just for emphasis is yeah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both writing at the beginning of the exile. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting is Jeremiah is writing from the homeland to the people who are in the exile. Ezekiel yeah. himself is in the exile, oftentimes speaking about what's happening in the homeland. And so they're in the same time period, but they're from the opposite 
sort of the opposite perspective. Yeah. So that makes yeah. the two of them together just really interesting to read. Yeah. They could have been great pen pals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So this passage that we're reading today, I mean, you can tell by the fact that we're in chapter 37, it <laughs> comes, you know, well into Ezekiel. A little bit into the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we've been through some stuff in the book of Ezekiel about, you know, the destruction of the temple and about sort of why are we in exile. Here at this point, Ezekiel is sort of shifting toward a more hopeful viewpoint at the end of his book. And so this this part of the uh, this part of the prof- the prophecy is taking seriously what has happened to the people, but it's also anticipating an end more than it's trying to explain the beginning, I think. Does yeah. that seem fair? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 to 14, and I am reading from the NRSV. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So the beginning of this passage has something about God's hand bringing Ezekiel out someplace (laughs) uh, by the spirit or the wind or the breath or the something. What? Should we envision is happening right here to Ezekiel? I mean, I'm picturing like the the Disney version of a Christmas carol where you like get zoomed around by the ghost of Christmas yeah. past. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I that. might be importing that from a later time period. <laughs> it's possible. But yeah. I just think it's so striking, like that starts with the hand of the Lord, yeah. the hand of yeah. the Lord, not the word, not the spirit, the hand of the Lord, like this whole text, so much of Ezekiel is so like right down there with yeah. you, like embodied, like I, I, it's not in this world of like just the spiritual and sort of these heady ideas. I mean, you know, all that stuff is sort of in there too, but yeah, the hand of the Lord and he's like flying through the air and then the (laughs) Lord sets him down in a valley. Yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, the, um, the Christmas carol is not entirely clear, at least while it's happening, (laughs) where the boundary is between like what is actually being experienced and what is being dreamed or what is a vision. And to me, that's similar in Ezekiel, actually, that like he's not, he doesn't say in a vision, God sent me down in a valley. He said, God picked me up by God's hand and took me to a valley. This is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So at least Mm -hmm. in his telling of it, this is like his physical body has been physically lifted and set down someplace else. Yeah. This, he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord. As you know, in Hebrew, that word spirit is ruach, which can mean Mm -hmm. spirit. It can also mean breath. It can also mean wind. And so I don't know that it matters necessarily, but this word is going to get used actually quite a bit in the passage today. And so, you know, you could, in the spirit could mean maybe he's having a visionary experience. By the wind means that the way God has transported him is just to blow real hard or to send a wind from somewhere that picks him up and, you know, like Mary Poppins, I guess, <laughs> I guess to import yeah. something else. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that uh, word ruach and what we ought to do with it here? It's so interesting because I, I, well, I, I confess, I read it in English instead of in Hebrew. And there's, there's a lot in this passage that reminded me a bit of the creation story. Yeah. And so I, it's, but it's not the same word. In the creation story, it's a, you know, Ruach Elohim, which is, you know, maybe a great, a great wind, a wind of God and, or something like this. Here it's, yeah. it's different. It's Adonai. But I guess I was picturing 
I was picturing that same kind of wind that blew during creation, yeah. which doesn't answer your question at all. It just draws a parallel. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I mean, I mean, it is the same. Like ruach is the same word. Then yeah, the designation the of God is mm-hmm. different. You're you're right about that. But I, I like that sort of. This is the this is the same breath, wind, spirit that was. I mean, we get that in verse. Is it verse one or verse two of Genesis? Mm-hmm. The same spirit that's been there since the beginning is is the same spirit of the same wind that's motivating what's happening right now. Yeah. Now, Ezekiel gets put down in a valley full of bones, and it says he led me all around them, and there were very many of them, and they were very dry. Mm-hmm. What do you take from that description that you think is important? Like, what? How should we be processing this valley of bones? Do you think? It's such a, that's such a good question. And I love the like slow reveal of information here. Yeah. You know, like it's not a summary statement. It's like as Ezekiel is perceiving these things, he's reporting them. Yeah. I mean, the questions that, the question that I had reading this text, reading this part of the text was like, do these details, the fact that there are very many of them, and they're very dry. I think specifically the dryness. Does that does it make them less likely to be able to live? Like, does it? Are they more dead than they <laughs> would be if they were if they were not so dry? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. does it does it make it seem like a greater miracle, or there's a greater sense of hopelessness? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way that I read it. But, although it's a good question, like, you know, bones lying on the ground are kind of hopeless, <laughs> like no matter how dry they are. But that's the way that I have read it is these are like bones that have been lying out for so long that they're sort of bleached, you know, and thoroughly dried out. And so the, you know, when the question is, can these bones live? I think the obvious answer is no, which is not what, you know, Ezekiel ends up saying. But to me, that's kind of the point is. yeah. These, I mean, and these are not bones that are buried in a grave or anything like these. This is just a valley. Or even attached to each other. Yeah. It sounds like it's just scattered bones in yeah. a field. Uh, yeah. Like this is a pretty hopeless yeah. scenario. Not that if you looked at it a bunch of skeletons, you would think, oh, maybe these things will get up. But yeah. But this is even yeah. worse than that. Yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. The bones are not even attached to each other maybe, and they are bleached dry in the sun, and they've been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. The question that God asks is, can these bones live? To which Ezekiel's answer is, oh, Lord God, you know. I'm just, what do you make of that interaction? You know, my my, fir- my first question was like, why, why is God asking Ezekiel this? Yeah. Like, why, you know, how is Ezekiel supposed to know? <laughs> yeah. And his answer is, it's not quite hopeless, but it's not quite anything you want to do can happen. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's like a more pious version of, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you, I mean, what do you, what do you, why does God ask Ezekiel? Is it just sort of like trying to get Ezekiel to pay attention? Is it like a pedagogical technique? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we've seen a couple of times this fall cases where God seems to sort of check somebody out before making a big reveal. The, the time that's occurring mm. to me was the way you talked about the Moses story where yeah. God, you know, here's a bush that is burning. Is Moses going to pay attention or not? And when yeah. he does pay attention, then God says, oh, okay, Moses, Moses. I think it would be possible, although I don't think it's necessary, but to read that question as sort of gauging Ezekiel, can these bones mm-hmm. live? I love what you said about that being sort of a pious shoulder shrug. Because <laughs> like, it's obvious that you should not say no, right? Which is the sort of gut response. <laughs> Here's a valley right. full of bleached dry bones unconnected. Can they live? No. Like, and so it's clear that <laughs> Ezekiel ought not say, have said that. And so, oh, Lord, you know, is better than having said no. I love yeah. what the question on the other side, which is, could or should Ezekiel have said, 
oh yeah, you can do anything, God. And I love that Ezekiel does not say that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is sort of getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I, I really love the the interplay of sort of hope and hopelessness in yeah. this in this text and the role of God in all of it. So I think I agree with you. Like it, it seems like it would be a little, I don't know, Pollyanna to be shown yeah. this incredibly stark and overwhelming, <laughs> yeah, vision of like a valley full of bones, a lot of bones that have been there for a really long time, mm-hmm. you know, to say like, sure, I'm sure you can fix this. Yeah. You know. It's like that um, little meme with the dog sitting in the flaming house <laughs> saying like, this is fine, <laughs> this is, is fine. fine. This is fine, know, yeah. That would be yeah. a little bit that way. Like, oh yeah, no problem, dry bones, whatever. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like I like that a lot that Ezekiel is not, like the bar is he is not hopeless. Yeah. It's not that, the bar is not that he is hopeful. It's yeah. that he is not hopeless. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's he seems open to the possibility, but he's really, yeah, his answer is totally non-committal. <laughs> yeah. So then if you think about like, thinks. if you think about yourself in, in a situation where the natural response would be hopelessness, yeah. if you can get to, I don't know, you tell me, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's as good as Ezekiel yeah. did. So maybe that's yeah. maybe that's as good as as we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. So then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. I had a note in here to check the Hebrew, which I did not do before. So I'm trying to look at it now. Oh, um, yeah. That so the 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 JPS translation says prophesy over the bones. Uh, and so I was like, does that mean regarding the bones or in proximity, like physically mm, over the bones? Yeah. And then yours was to the bones. Yeah. Right? The Hebrew, the Hebrew is all. Is all. Yeah, yeah, which I wouldn't translate as to. No. Concerning or about. But it could be concerning or about, or it could it could be like have some proximity to it. Like I always picture it all as sort of like being against the surface of something. But I just that that is such a weird imperative. Don't you think that's a weird thing to tell someone to do? Yeah, because then right after that it's uh Marta Alehem, so and yes. say to them. Yes. So even if it's prophesy about these bones. It's still say to them. Eventually, you're going to talk to the bones. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Ezekiel is so weird. <laughs> I love it. Not the person Ezekiel, the book. The I mean, book. maybe the person was the person, too, but yeah. he has some weird experiences. Yeah, I mean, the weirdness, I think is, there's a value in the weirdness. Because what is happening yeah. then is God is saying to Ezekiel, even though you don't know whether this thing can work out or not, I still want you to prophesy about it. That yes. it can happen. And I want you to not just prophesy about it, but I want you to prophesy to these bones, <laughs> which are yeah. a pile of heaping, a heaping pile of dried bones. And yeah. I want you to talk to them and say this prophecy. When God is like apparently standing right there right. and could just like do the thing. Right. But there is something about Ezekiel speaking a prophecy about which he is unsure. Yeah. To the bones which seem unable to like hear or comprehend or anything. That just seems like so important. Do you see it? You know, I'm thinking as you're talking about some of the other weird stuff that Ezekiel does, like that he eats a scroll because God tells him to. And those things are sort of described as, you know, sign acts. Yeah. Do you think there's some aspect of that playing in here too? Like there's, I kind of don't even know what I'm asking. But it's just such a bizarre thing to ask him to do. Yeah. And like, who's the sign act for? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. in the, some of those public ones, like the one where Ezekiel has to lie on one side for 40 days and then flip over and lie on the other side for 390 days yeah. or, or whatever it is. Yeah. He's doing it in the middle of the road, it seems like. And so people are like, hey, Ezekiel, like, what are you doing there? And he's like, destruction is coming to Samaria and Jerusalem. Yeah. But here, he's just in a valley, like, you know, with God and some dry bones. bones. And so the only, only, I think, reasonable answer to who is the sign for is either it's for Ezekiel 
or it's for you and me, the reader, Mm. to model something about prophetic activity. Yeah. This was another part of the text that reminded me a little bit of creation, like talking to the bones, like the way that God sort of calls forth things within creation to be fruitful and multiply or whatever. Like God, you know, God is going to speak and creation, even inanimate objects in creation are going to respond to the speech. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's especially true starting in the next verse when the things actually start to happen. I I think that connection to creation is Mm -hmm, is really, mm -hmm. really important. On this question about the sign act, you know, where my head is, is it's important for Ezekiel to say the prophecy that he does not believe is necessarily true Mm. in a totally ridiculous context in which nobody can actually hear him. Yeah. And that maybe that's a sign to us, the reader, that sometimes the prophetic word that we have is a thing that seems completely contrary to lived reality. And we ourselves may not actually think that it's a prophecy that has any possibility of coming true. And yet the speaking of the prophecy is still important. The proclamation of the word is still urgent. It can't mm-hmm. happen without that, even though it seems ridiculous and un- and unlikely. There's still something about s- there's still something about speaking reality that makes reality possible. No, I really like that last that last bit in particular. There's something about speaking reality that makes reality possible. Yeah, I don't know. I'm and and I don't know. Now I'm like thinking about whether whether it's possible for the the dry bones to be witness to this act of Ezekiel's, even though they're just a heap of bones. I just find this, I find this whole scene so poignant. And I think it's exactly because as you pointed out, it's so weird. Like we have been so disoriented in this text that it has made everything strange in a way that I find really moving. Yeah. Okay, let's continue on, picking up in verse 7. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. So when Ezekiel starts to say his prophecy, there's sort of a two-stage thing that happens here. There's First of all, there's the coming together of the bones and the reforming of bodies. And then there's this whole other thing going on with the breath. Yeah. What do you think about, like, like... I don't know. How do we think about those two stages of body, breath, and this reanimation? Well, I mean, first, I feel like I just need to say I, there's a page turn in my uh, my edition of the Bible at that place, and I was so like stunned that like, oh wait, you mean like right now? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not a this is not a prophecy. I think of prophecy yeah. as like. This is happening down the line somewhere. But as soon as he starts to say the stuff that God said to say, the bones (laughs) start rattling around. Which again, I I mean, yeah, you don't have to sit around hoping for very long. Like just as soon as you start talking. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to think of specifically for your question about like the two phases. I mean, I noticed when, when this whole process was outlined in that last little chunk of text, it starts with like, there will be breath to enter you and you shall live again. And then sinews, mm. sinews, I never use that word in English. Sinews, flesh, and skin. And then it sort of closes again with breath into you and you should live again. Yeah. I guess I don't I don't know quite what to make of it other than it both the way that's articulated in the previous little paragraph and in some ways the separation into stages here. Is like, 
you know, the breath is the ultimate thing, but the breath can't happen without the the detail, the details of the body. Yeah. Like I'm really struck by the fact that they they name the flesh had grown and skin had formed over yeah. them. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of detail. A lot of detail. Yeah. And that you need that you need both of those things. Yeah. But but ultimately, yeah, it's ultimately it's the breath, but the breath can't happen without the other piece. And your observation that the prophecy starts with breath, breath, body, breath, but the actual carrying out of the prophecy is body, breath. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And so there's something about the attentiveness to the body, like the physical reality that is necessary. Otherwise, the breath or the spirit can't do anything. You've got to actually have those, the the bodies in place. I, I don't quite know, but I mean, when you're thinking about restoration, if you if you start to sort of metaphoricalize these bodies a little bit, thinking mm-hmm. about the importance of paying attention to the physical well-being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before or in addition to paying attention to the actual life breath that's going on. That, that seems really important. This reminds me of the other creation story. You were, you were talking about the Genesis 1 with the Ruach yeah. Elohim. This reminds me of the Genesis 2 creation story in the Garden mm. of Eden where God forms humankind out of the clay and then humankind yeah. is like an inanimate being and then breathes the breath. There's mm-hmm. sort of a two-stage creation in Genesis 2, mm-hmm. a two-stage recreation right here. It's not the forming from the clay is not the same. It's the reconstruction of bodies. Yeah. But that sort of here's a here's an inanimate body followed yeah. by the breath. Right. Here's some raw material mm-hmm. that is inanimate that I can form into form into a living thing and then blow blow air, blow life, spirit yeah. into it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I don't think you like it when I ask you questions like this, but I'm going to try to ask it in a more <laughs> body-friendly way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel different to read this having Ezekiel involved in the way that he's involved as opposed to, you know, God saying, "Have a seat, Ezekiel. Look what I'm going to do with these bones." Yeah, so Ezekiel could have simply had a vision of all of this stuff happening in which Mm -hmm. he himself played no role. But that's not Mm -hmm. what happens. Instead, he is a first-person character who is acting, and the vision, I don't even know if it is a vision, but the the reanimation of these bones would not have happened, presumably, had Ezekiel not performed his part. That seems urgently important. (laughs) Yeah. So the question is, like, in what way is that important? Yeah. You know, I can think of two things, and I'm curious what you think as well. One is that... Ezekiel, as a prophet, needs to claim some credibility for himself, right? So when Ezekiel prophesies good news to other people Mm. later, why should you listen to him? Well, because he prophesied in this case, and what he prophesied came to pass. So maybe there's something there. Mm. Mm -hmm. To me, maybe the more interesting is, you know, I keep thinking of myself as Ezekiel in this text, which is not always the right or the best or the first move. One could also identify as a, as a bone, I suppose, in this text. <laughs> uh, I'm a femur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting exercise. To yeah, that'd be a good Sunday school class. Like, if you were a bone, what bone would you be? <laughs> anyway, uh, but to think about the, it is necessary for the person, for a person, for somebody, mm-hmm. to have enough confidence, willingness. Mm-hmm trust, mm-hmm. faith, to actually speak the words that seem impossible, even even as, you know, ah. Ezekiel's walking us through this thing. We're experiencing it with him. And so just as Ezekiel made this prophecy, so we too need to be willing to, to make these prophecies. I love that. I love that it's like, yeah, okay, God is doing it. But there is a little bit of like, like you have to add your little pinch of, if not quite faith, like willingness to suspend disbelief yeah. and say, I'm just going to walk down this path and see what happens in order to like activate the the restoration. Yeah. You know? Ooh, I really like that. I was picturing like like a guy doing a magic trick and you have to pull, have someone from the audience pull the magic <laughs> card, the card yeah. out so they know you didn't, yeah. you know, 
rig it or whatever. Your answer is much better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting the degree to which in the Bible, like God often does not do things directly. So even when you think about the Exodus, right, clearly God was the one who performed the Exodus, but it all took place through Moses and Aaron. Right, but Yad Moshe. Yeah, yes. And in that case, in my mind, it that happened because the Israelites needed to see someone. Mm. Like the Israelites needed a visible leader. And at least at the moment of this vision, you know, as we said, it's just Ezekiel and some bones. Yeah. But which which just sort of like takes it to a whole other level in some ways, that there is no human witness to this. Yeah. And so then the next level would be something like God does not work except through human intermediaries. God cannot work through other than through human intermediaries. Like oh, that's that, intense, Bobby. That is yet a step further than, <laughs> than the yeah. text goes. But I think about that one. If nobody's speaking the prophecy, the prophecy is not going to come true. And Ezekiel even gets to call the breath. Yeah. You know, like we we asked, you asked before, like, what is this Ruach Adonai? What, like, what is yeah. it? And here, I don't know, if we envisioned it just as like, you know, in creation, it was God breathing directly into this little mud man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here, there's, yeah, there's there's working through another person. Yeah, this first nine to me is so interesting, like, like all the way around. In that Genesis 2 text that we were talking about, God does breathe directly into the nostrils, and the word that's used there for God's breath is nishma, which clearly means a breath. Mm-hmm. Here in verse 9, it's the word ruach that's getting used over and over again in ways that are a little bit confusing about what exactly is happening. So in verse 9, prophesy to the ruach, prophesy mm-hmm. and say to the ruach, come mm-hmm. from the four ruchot, O ruach. So you've got the breath that is entering into the people or into the these newly animated or newly embodied <laughs> bones. <laughs> yeah. And the, the four winds are bringing in the breath, but the word wind is the word breath. Like mm-hmm. the mixing of breath, spirit, wind here is super complicated, really intriguing. I mean, you know, it's interesting you – you mentioned Genesis 2 and how nishma is, you know, more clearly a breath, but it's related to nishama, which is a soul. Mm. And I don't know when historically that relationship happened. I don't know if that's a later form of Hebrew. Yeah, that's interesting. But there is still this, you know, at least in, in, in modern Jewish thinking, there is still this thought that like breath and soul are related in the way that spirit and wind yeah, or spirit and breath are related, but just maybe seem a little more like, I feel like the, the scale of Ruach is bigger. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's either God's breath or yeah. it's, you know, some kind of bigger spirit or wind or something like that. A little more powerful. And it's interesting to me that here it is prophesied to the Ruach. It's yeah. not like, you know, regarding or over or anything like that yeah. with the bones. It's it's very directly like, now you're going to talk to the wind, Ezekiel. Yeah. What else can we make Ezekiel do? You think God's having a little fun with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, I think so. And it's so dramatic. And this, prof, uh, like, prophesy and say to the winds, come from the four winds, O wind, right? So the four yeah. winds are like, I think, these are like the, winds of the world, right? They're like the compass points, northeast, south, and west. So it's like the the northern wind, the southern wind, the eastern wind, the western wind. And so the the breath that's going to re-enter into these bodies is the global wind that's going to yeah. come and enter into them. Mm-hmm. To me, that that is so fascinating that it's now it's not God's like through God's nostril into That's human right. nostril. That's right. This is not the Ruach Adonai. This, yeah. this is like the, the, ru- the winds of the created world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so creation itself is involved here, like the, the winds yeah. of the world, the, ecos- the winds of the ecosystem. Like nature is in some ways giving life to these inanimated human beings. That's fascinating. Yeah. 
I don't know what to do with that. I don't either. So then we're now we're walking around breathing the breath that is the wind, which in some ways is kind of the way life actually That is, is exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it fits with my sort of obsession in Ezekiel with like how much, how grounded in the body he is. Yeah. For For a priest and a prophet, you know, he's really quite, He's grounded in the physical realities of life, and now it's also grounded in these, like, realities of the created world. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA, and I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the narrative lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. So Amy, in the uh, Bible Worm Collaborative, there was some conversation about how this text is kind of scary, especially for people who have not read it before. Like, I think once you've read Ezekiel a few times or you've sung the spirituals, like this all sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a couple of comments in the Bible, in the um, Bible Worm Collaborative about congregants having gotten kind of upset about this text, or said that was scary, like I, I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, I think I would agree it is scary. Yeah. This is scary. Yeah. And I think that's part of the that's part of the point. Like I, I almost want people to hold on to that edge of it and not go all the way into, oh no, 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 but they'll be restored. Or no, you know, but like yeah. it it this is not like a I would imagine Ezekiel is terrified. Yeah. Standing in a in a valley of bones. And I don't know. You know, we'll get in that when we talk about the next section, I guess, to talk about like how <laughs> how how literally or figuratively should we think about this whole story? Yeah. But almost for me, regardless of whether we ultimately decide this whole thing is a metaphor, the fact that it takes us all the way to the edge, like all the way to the scariest and most final thing we can imagine, not just dead, but like dead and your body has fallen apart and dried up and like like it's beyond beyond. Yeah. But it takes you all the way there. And it, I mean, that for me is like, it is like fearsome and awesome. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And you know, I, I am pretty sure as I think about it that I have heard Jews express that sense of scariness about Jesus yeah. dying. And then, sure, yeah. you know, like that's, that's, I mean, it doesn't have the details of the bones and all that stuff, yeah. but. Yeah, it seems like an uncrossable boundary in yeah. our world experience. And so to have a story where it is crossed is yeah. scary. I, I appreciate that connection. And, you know, what you're making me think of, like, I sort of thought of the the valley full of dry bones is kind of scary. But I, yeah. you're helping me see that the, it's actually also <laughs> that the, like, those dry bones now being like people walking around with breath in them. Like, that's also kind of scary. And it's interesting to think about, you know, miracles can be experienced as frightening. Yeah. And and so because they violate what we think is possible. Right. Because they come back together, things come together in unexpected ways that we don't know what to do with. Like, not only a valley full of dry bones coming back to life is scary, but like our own sort of restorations and reinvigorations, which don't look like we expected them to look, those can also be frightening. Yeah, no, I mean, I know I always say about the exile that the scariest part of that story to me is that this realization that the the way people thought the world worked seems not to have yeah. been 
true or not to be true anymore. And that kind of fear is also present in what you're talking about when when you experience miracles. Yeah. That you know what the the laws that you thought governed (laughs) our lives maybe were not true. Yeah. And that. uh, Yeah. No, that's right. And I think what I'm thinking about differently right now is that that's true on both ends of the exile. And so, you know, when you think like, oh, this world we thought was one way failed and now we're in exile, like that seems scary. When you say this exile that we're in is ending and something new is happening, that seems wholly exciting to me. But it's also scary. Like that new, the newness is also scary. Yeah. It's like the way we talk about, you know, good stress and bad stress, but also stress is stress. You know, this is sort of like a, much larger version <laughs> yeah. of that. Not just moving, but, you know, bones coming back to life. Yeah. Yeah. So I've gotten a wee bit ahead of us uh, talking about mm. the end of the exile. So let's. why don't we read this last section and then we can okay. talk about the image as a whole. So picking up in verse 11. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. So here, kind of belatedly, we realize that this whole thing with the bones has been pointing us to the people of Israel and the restoration of the people of Israel in the exile. Yeah. And so this vision Ezekiel has had or experience Ezekiel has had has prepared the way for the prophecy that he's now supposed to make to the people. How do you connect this vision of the dry bones and the people of Israel being restored from the exile? I I love that question and it it's a slightly different iteration of the question that arose to my mind mm. but maybe a better one. My question was sort of in what way is this collective and in what way is it individual? Like oh, yeah. like before I was picturing all these bones and they all come together in individual bodies. Yeah. And and now now it's talking about them sort of as the house of Israel, like not the children of Israel. It's not a plural. It's a collective entity in some way. And and so then that starts to feel, I guess that starts to feel more metaphorical yeah. to me, that, that, that there, was, there was a sense that the, that the house of Israel, that Israel would cease to exist as Israel because of the events of the exile. And they had, you know, they were losing hope. What is the quote that Ezekiel has in here? Our bones are dried up. Our, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. Uh-huh. So I guess I was seeing those two things as sort of, I don't know, maybe parallel in some yeah. way, like the bones or the hope. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will tell you, traditional Jewish interpreters here find, this is where they find the idea of the resurrection of the dead, like the literal embodied resurrection of the dead before the day of judgment. They go very much the other way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a sort of a natural reading. And as you're saying, quite an ancient one, that this is literal resurrection. And Ezekiel does come to be understood that way fairly early on. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that's not probably what Ezekiel's doing in the first instance. Yeah. And so I, in my, I think it's helpful to kind of keep both of those things together to say there is a literal res- resurrection of the dead that is pointed to here. But before we go there, what Ezekiel's really trying to do is talk about the communal resurrection of the people of Israel in the world, which is clear enough, right? Because he keeps saying, I'm going to put you back in the land. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. going to bring you back to Israel. You're going to be on your own soil. So there is a clear embodiedness in the present world, on the present land that's taking place here. So I think at the very least, to hold those two things together and to say the reconstitution of the people of Israel on their land is what Ezekiel has in mind in the first instance. 
-hmm. Can we extrapolate that to literal life after death? Sure we can, but that's not probably what Ezekiel is, is up to. Yeah. Here again, you see that connection of restored people and land or creation or nature. Somebody was bringing, yeah. brought this up in the Bible and collaborative, I thought in really helpful ways. So now you've got people who are constituted by the breath that came from the four winds who have been restored to their proper place on the land. Mm-hmm. And so that we keep coming back to the connection between human beings and the natural world as being a sign of, of right order or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that the, the, in order for the house of Israel to be reconstituted in this meaningful way that, yeah, this is just restating what you just stated really, but that, that necessarily involves being placed in a certain yeah. place. Like yeah. those things are all all tied up together. Mm-hmm. And so just as the exile felt like an undoing of that in some way, mm-hmm. the undoing will be undone. Yeah. I love that. And I'm trying to think what you do with place, like place matters in a contemporary context. So maybe that's the next, mm. maybe that's the next question. For Israel, like you've been displaced from your place. And so you, you get to go back to your place. For, for moderns, if we say, well, what then does that mean for us when, when we're dried out and reconstituted and put back in our place, like what, what is that place? To which I do not know. And I'm a little bit thinking that maybe I, 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 this is one of the places where people like me live a disembodied spirituality that sort of thinks yeah. about like my spiritual well-being, but doesn't necessarily think about my locatedness in, in any very Yeah. That's the way. thought that popped into my head when you asked the question was like, oh, I, there are so many ancient religious traditions that have that deep sense of connection yeah. to a particular place and the specificity of the place matters. Mm-hmm. And not as many modern folks, I think, really think about that. Yeah. Probably to our detriment. So just to go back, in this section, the people now of Israel are being compared, in the exile, are being compared to the bones and the dryness of the bones is about hope. When you So now that we've read the whole passage, does, does knowing now what Ezekiel is really thinking about change the way you read that first part about the dry bones? Or does it help you see different things there that, that you missed before? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't it. I mean, it, no, I mean, it definitely helps me relate better to the text, but I'm also really grateful that we didn't start with the conversation about hope. Yeah. That we started with this really disorienting, kind of scary, really embodied language. And I'm really grateful that Ezekiel sticks with it. Like, I'm going to open your grave and lift you out of it. Yeah. Like, it really... It just goes all, like that to me is the like parallel to the part of the conversation about like no bones and sinews and flesh and skin. Yeah. And then breath. You yeah. know, like it goes all the way, all the way down to like the scariest mental image you can imagine. You're laying in your grave and it's closed. Yeah. Because otherwise, for me, the conversation about hope just kind of floats around, I don't know, in a, in, in a not very evocative yeah. Way. But I am glad that we're not talking about zombies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, going back to what Ezekiel says, uh, when God says, you know, can these bones live? And for that to be a legitimate question about the bones means it's also a legitimate question about the people. And so to be in a place where it's not, it's not actually clear whether or not the people can live again. And so when we live, have a lived experience in which it is not clear whether there is life on the other side of wherever we are, Mm. when it feels like our hope is so lost that our bones are completely dried out, this passage says, all you got to be able to do in that moment then is to say, you know, Lord, which is one step beyond saying I am hopeless, but it is a far cry from being able to say I am hopeful. It is Mm -hmm. simply the, I haven't. I haven't given it up yet. Yeah. And what I love about the idea that the the dried bones 
are the the hope, the dried up hope in mm-hmm. some way, is that Ezekiel doesn't like you don't have to do anything. No one does anything. Like it's not like you have to hold out hope. It's like God will return the hope yeah. to you in a miraculous act. Yeah. Like we know you can't flip a switch and become hopeful for the future. But it's almost it's like one step removed from that. Like you can hope that God will give you hope. But it just feels like it feels like a more reasonable ask mm-hmm. in that situation. And if the people are the bones, then the people don't even actually have to be able to muster that. It's the prophet who has to be able to muster enough courage to be able to say that there is that things are not hopeless yet. The bones just lie there and then are reanimated. Like the people are just reconstituted as a people. But there's something about the role of the prophet who needs who needs to be able to prophesy even if they're not sure about the outcome of the prophecy. Yeah. Right. Just do the next thing. But you have me thinking now because you said I said, what if the bones are the hope? Mm. And you said, what if the bones are the people? The people. What do we think these bones are a metaphor for? <laughs> Clearly, I think the bones are the people. Well. Who have lost their hope. The hope is the bone moisture. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate moisturizer. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of the bones as like the dreams or the mm. uh, all the things you. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm thinking of it less as like when you say people. Do you mean like actual people or like the people? Like the I don't. That's the communal. The community. The community, which also involves individuals, but like right, 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 right. We have right. been so disrupted that we are like dry bones that might as well be in our graves. Yeah. So because we have no hope, we are dry like a valley of bones. Mm-hmm. But that's different than the way you're reading it, right? Yeah, but I don't think they're incompatible with each other. Because if the, if the valley is full of your old dried up hopes and dreams it's to the hopes and dreams for the people Mm. so yeah I think your reading is probably closer to what Ezekiel is thinking I don't really know I'm really intrigued by by where you've headed with it to me it's really important to be able to say when you think you're done for as a people Mm -hmm. as a person and as a people there is yet hope and that hope rests in God's capacity to do the things that you never had the courage to ask for. Or something like that. I don't know. This is one of those passages that on the on the one hand, it seems clear enough what's happening here. But on the other hand, it's such a bizarre set of things that's happening here that I think that there are a variety of openings for what one might do with a passage like this. So when you're thinking about this passage, thinking about contemporary life, thinking about your community... What do you think is the is the message to take away here? I'm going to answer your question with a story. Okay. I love your stories. <laughs> it's not that good of a story. Don't get excited. No. Okay. <laughs> so there is this central prayer in Jewish tradition called the Amidah. And it includes in it, other prayers include this idea also, but the idea that God will raise the dead. The God is the one who raises the dead. And mm-hmm. that you know, I think comes from this idea from Ezekiel. I spent a long time in a uh, Reconstructionist synagogue where they they struck language like this from the liturgy because it didn't reflect their beliefs, you know, and they were like, we need to pray what we think is true. And if we don't think that God actually resurrects the dead, it we need to not stand before God and say, <laughs> we think you're going to resurrect the dead. Mm-hmm. And I have recently moved into a conservative synagogue, and so this language is back in there, and I have to, you know, relearn all the prayers and remember to to add these parts back in. And 
And I was worried about what it would feel like to pray these words. Yeah. So what? So when I okay, this story is going to get a little weird. But I <laughs> have I ever told you that I'm a little dead inside, Bobby. <laughs> no. <laughs> what does that people, mean? People, people. I mean, people joke. I joke. Whatever. I'm just not like a super emotional person. I'm just not a very emotional person. But it occasionally comes to my attention that perhaps that is to the detriment of some people in my life, and I should endeavor to become more emotional. But you can't just tell someone to be more emotional. Like, yeah. what does that even mean? Like, you can't, you can't like, fl- press a button and be like, great, now I'm very emotive. <laughs> and so when I encountered these words, first of all, it made me laugh because it's literally, like, the one who, you know, brings to life the dead. And I was like, oh, I am dead inside, so that's good. Thank <laughs> God. But more, like, on a more serious level, it did – it really spoke to me in terms of like, I don't know, thinking about the ways in which we all feel a little dead sometimes. We feel like numbed to things that we need to not be numbed to. And sometimes we numb ourselves for good reasons and, you know, for a while to get through a moment. But we we need to be resurrected during our own lives. Like yeah. we need we need God to be able to bring us back from this valley of dried bones. And I don't know, it became a very like resonant metaphor for me in the course of, you know, relearning the whole liturgy with all these phrases included in it. And I think in particular, the idea that like, it's the kind of thing that you pray for, but you can't really do a lot about other than ask God do it. Like yeah. I don't know, I don't know what the steps would be to do that other yeah. than to honestly hope that hope that God will do it. Yeah. That's so that's where this text is sort of sitting with me now and thinking about, you know, again I know we're we're reading this during the Christian season of Advent and so that sort of balance of of hope and acknowledgement of hopelessness or hoping hoping for hope yeah. or not knowing how to move towards hope but still being willing to imagine it's possible. Um, I think that's really real. Yeah. I love that, Amy. I really do. And I have not experienced you as being an emotionally emotional <laughs> person, person, which I makes me wonder. Maybe I don't know you as well as I, as I think I do. But <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just going to continue not knowing that about you. <laughs> no, I, I love what you're saying about, especially, you know, like where you were saying, I don't even know what you would do about that other than pray that God would do something about it. And, you know, I think this is part of the message of this text is absent God, those that valley full of dry bones continues to be a valley full of dry bones. Mm-hmm. Absent God, the community of Israel in exile continues to be a community of Israel in exile never reconstituted. So it's exactly the point that there isn't anything you can really do and that God is the one who who an, who animates, who reanimates. Mm-hmm. I'm also really intrigued by the figure of Ezekiel in this text, as, as we've talked about a couple of times along the way, because this text doesn't happen without Ezekiel either. Yeah. So it's not exactly that there's nothing you can do, right? Because Ezekiel is necessary to this story both in the Valley of the Dried Bones and also in prophesying to Israel that their end hasn't been completed yet either. Without God, Ezekiel can't do a single thing. But it seems like without Ezekiel, God isn't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so the the role of Ezekiel, who is both an exile, whose hope has been lost, and is also a prophet whose job it is to speak possibilities. And he inhabits both of those roles. And so to think of us also, not just people who host a podcast or who proclaim from a pulpit, but people of faith, we inhabit Mm -hmm. both of those roles as people who belong to the community that has been so disrupted that we think maybe there isn't hope for us. And also as people of faith, we have a responsibility to point to the possibility of a truth, of, of a restoration about which we can do nothing. And so to say, like, it is necessary for Ezekiel to see the bones 
acknowledge the situation, Mm -hmm. to say, oh, Lord, you know, I don't know, you know, and then to speak the prophecy, even though Ezekiel has just said he doesn't know for sure whether or not the prophecy actually can do anything, right? God Mm -hmm. knows, but Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I'm going to speak the words anyway. To me, there's something so rich about that to say, Mm -hmm. while we are in exile, while we experience the dryness of life, while we look around us and see a valley of dry bones, while we don't know whether any future is yet possible, nonetheless, we prophesy hope to those bones. And we Mm -hmm. call the winds, you know, and we and we say, you, you can come back together. And that, that creates the possibility of a new future into which God then moves and, and animates the, the new hope. Mm. To me, those two things together like, are, are really beautiful, both what does it mean as a person who experiences the dryness of life? What does it yeah. mean as someone who uh, needs yet to be able to call forth new possibility? Yeah. I think this text touches on both of those. I love that. And I, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking back to the Jeremiah text mm-hmm. and that also that idea that like you can you can see realistically all the things around you. Like you don't have to pretend they're not yeah. there. Yeah. But still to be able to move towards hope in whatever whatever small ways you can. Like, again, this, you know, Jeremiah was very embodied about it. And Ezekiel here is, in in his metaphorical language, is very embodied about it. Like, just, yeah, move ever so slightly towards hope. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, thanks for another great conversation. I, I Sometimes I feel like I leave these conversations with more questions than I had coming in. Which I think I is probably a good sign of, of probably rich good, study. if yeah. not always satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next week we are in our last Hebrew Bible text of the year, which is Isaiah chapter fifty-five, verses one to thirteen. And then I'll be the, here. We're under the Gospel of John after that. I don't think I've ever read the Gospel of John. It's a good one. It is different than the other three. Yes, so I've heard. Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it goes, but that's uh, that's an issue for another day. Indeed. Have a good week. You too. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as four dollars per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next week when we'll be discussing Isaiah 55, 1-13. Until then, keep on digging.